regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I'm glad that you're with us today. We're going to be talking about the upcoming uh, decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin on today's program because... Oh, the anti-gun activists are uh, starting to freak out just a little bit about this. I ran across a piece at the website Fast Company, which generally doesn't write about guns, like, at all, that I'm aware of anyway. Uh, but uh, they've got a new piece out uh, by a guy named uh, Talib Vizram, who uh, on Twitter describes himself as a Brit in Brooklyn. So, uh, just so you know where this author is coming from... Probably uh, has held some, you know, fairly anti-gun views for quite some time. And that is certainly uh, evident in his piece. A landmark gun case could change New York's concealed carry law or worse. Dun, dun, dun. So that's the title of this piece. And the premise, obviously, is that uh, nothing good is going to come from the Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, here's how um, uh, Visram uh, begins his piece. He says, accustomed to relatively strict gun control laws. Relatively strict, by the way. New Yorkers watching mass shootings unfold across other parts of the country in recent years may have felt somewhat invincible to indiscriminate gun violence. Why, why on earth would he write that? And why on earth would any New Yorker believe that, especially given the increase in violent crime we've seen in New York City over the past couple of years. He writes, April 12th was a wake-up call when a gunman started shooting at passengers on a subway car in Brooklyn during a morning commute. Now a landmark Supreme Court case that's due for a ruling this summer could compound fears of more similar gun violence in crowded city spaces. That's right, because somebody illegally brought a gun onto the subway and illegally began shooting at people. Yeah, he's concerned that People being able to lawfully carry a firearm in self-defense could lead to more crime. I don't really get that argument, but uh, let's delve a little bit deeper. He says, in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, plaintiffs filed a lawsuit against New York State Police who denied their concealed carry permit request, claiming that they didn't have proper cause. Uh, it actually wasn't the New York State Police that did that, although the New York State Police Commissioner is the named plaintiff in this case. But in New York, it's basically county judges or in some cases county sheriffs that determine whether or not you have demonstrated good cause to exercise your segment right to bear arms. So, again, doesn't quite have a strong grasp of the uh, intricacies of this case, but okay. He writes, uh, New York has one of the strictest gun laws in the country. In place since 1913, it says that officials may grant concealed carry permits only if applicants can demonstrate proper cause to carry beyond reasons of general safety, which may include working as a security guard or having experienced legitimate death threats. New York, he says, is one of only nine of those so-called may-issue states, or actually eight, all of which, he says, have, quote, among the lowest gun death rates in the country. Consistently, he writes, more permissive gun laws have been more guns, and in turn, more gun violence and deaths. So again, we go back to the more guns equals more crime argument, which... We've disputed and discounted time and time again here, but uh, I'll do it again briefly. 
Uh, violent crime dropped in this country by about 50 percent, including gun related homicides between 1991 and 2020, a time in which more states were adopting shall issue right to carry laws, more states adopting constitutional carry laws in which no permission slip from the state is required before you can exercise your right to keep and bear arms. Millions of Americans became gun owners during that same time period to the point that we now have roughly 100 million American gun owners, roughly 400 million privately owned firearms. And again, violent crime declined by 50 percent until 2020. Now, if more guns equaled more crime, that would have happened. Violent crime would have continued increasing from the early 1960s on through today. That's not what we saw, because more guns does not equal more crime. Any more than more gun control laws equal less crime. State of California has more than 100 state-level gun control laws in the books. They have roughly the same violent crime rate as the state of Texas, which has far fewer, of course. But he is insistent, this fast company rider is, that, uh, oh no, if people are able to protect themselves in urban places like New York City, that everybody is going to be worse off as a result. Uh, He quotes, in uh, support of that argument, David Pacino, Deputy Chief Counsel at Giffords, he says, filed an amicus brief in the case. Giffords uh, Pacino says that the Bruin case, quote, really has the potential to totally upend the system that New York has had in place for over 100 years. Boy, I sure hope so. Should the court rule in favor of the plaintiffs, he writes, it would strike down New York's stringent law and potentially allow anyone to obtain a concealed carry permit. An even broader ruling could open the floodgates to revisiting a host of other common sense gun laws. Yeah, common sense gun laws. Which, by the way, here's the thing. If they're truly common sense, and more importantly, if they're truly constitutional, then additional court scrutiny won't matter. You could bring a case, and the Supreme Court would say, look, this is fine. It doesn't violate anybody's Second Amendment rights, so it can stay on the books. What's the problem there? The problem, of course, is that gun control advocates don't want the Constitution to matter. Uh, I've never met Talib Vizram, so I don't know if the Brit living in Brooklyn has a high regard for the Constitution, but I know damn well that a lot of gun control advocates would prefer that the Second Amendment not exist. It would make their quest to disarm the American people a heck of a lot easier. But that's not the world that we live in. Thankfully, we do have the Constitution. We do have the Bill of Rights. And yes, those words still mean something as faded as they might be on the parchment in the National Archives. And when you violate people's right to keep and bear arms, those laws should be struck down. And if the average New Yorker cannot protect themselves outside of the home, I would argue, as former Solicitor General Paul Clement argued on behalf of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association and two individual plaintiffs, that yes, rights are not just being regulated in that case. They are being violated. They are being infringed. Now, the uh, Fast Company uh, writer, uh, Talib Vizram, goes on to say, since Heller, the public carry question has been brewing in lower courts, most of which, he writes, have upheld restrictions, citing public safety considerations. I'm not actually sure that that's the case. Um, The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals found that, yes, there is a right to carry outside of the home. And rather than appeal that decision to the state Supreme Court, or excuse me, to the U.S. Supreme Court, the state of Illinois decided to adopt a shall-issue concealed carry law. Uh, Washington, D.C., the District uh, Court of Appeals, also found that there was a right to carry outside of the home, and the District of Columbia 
struck down its good cause requirements. The Ninth Circuit has found that there's no right to carry. The Second Circuit has found that uh, New York's concealed carry laws are perfectly fine, uh, incompatible with the Constitution. But uh, I think it's it's not fair to say that most of the courts have found that there's no right to carry. No, actually, there's a split in the circuit courts, which is why, one reason why anyway, the Supreme Court has taken up this case. All right, anyway, back to this uh, Fast Company report. Uh, he uh, writes, the Supreme Court may not use such considerations, public safety considerations. Instead, the proponents of originalism on the court, of which there are at least three, may use the text, history, and tradition test, which uses the pure text of the Second Amendment and historical precedent, something that Eric Tishwell, executive director and chief litigation counselor for Everytown Law, says is an extreme test and one that the gun lobby favors. Now, why would the gun lobby favor a test that uses the text of the Constitution and historical precedent. Maybe because that's what the Constitution is supposed to require. <sighs> Meanwhile, uh, gun control activists obviously would like to be able to just simply make the argument of more guns leads to more crime and then have the courts uphold every one of their gun control laws. Which again, not how it is supposed to work. Now, as uh, uh, Visrum reluctantly acknowledges, Things are getting worse in New York, even though the carry laws haven't changed. He writes, gun violence in New York City has already surged since the onset of the pandemic. In January of 2022, gun crime had increased by a third versus January 2021. In the first half of 2021, there were more shootings in New York City than in the previous decade. And in one weekend in March of 2022, 29 people were shot, including at a bar in Queens and on a subway platform in Brooklyn. Referring to or quoting uh, the uh, Giffords attorney, Pacino says, uh, I think most New Yorkers who commute on the subway, as I do, want that to be a space where there aren't guns. Well, here's the thing for Mr. Pacino. Uh, concealed carry isn't banned on public transportation in New York City. My guess is because New York City officials have never felt the need to do so since there are so few concealed carry holders and most of them are so politically powerful and well-connected, not to mention well-off financially, that they're not using public transportation. But there is no ban on lawful carrying of a concealed firearm on New York City subways or on public buses. Imagine there will be if the Bruin decision strikes down New York's May issue law. That'll be one of the first restrictions they try to put in place. But it's not in place now. And so the argument from Pacino that, well, I think we'd all be feeling safer if these were gun-free places. A, I wouldn't. But B, they're not right now. And yet Pacino is apparently taking the subway to work every damn day. Which... Uh, you know, maybe he needs to get a refresher course on New York City's gun laws. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, Visrum concludes his uh, column for Fast Company by saying if the ruling is more expansive, it could ditch the entire public safety framework that lower courts have been using to uphold carry restrictions. It could provide a whole new basis for future decisions on all kinds of gun regulation lawsuits currently in limbo and supported by the gun lobby related to assault weapons bans and large magazine bans and the minimum age for the sale of handguns. They could fundamentally redefine the Second Amendment and change America's gun laws. I, so I want to get to Pacino's quote, the, the quote from the giver's attorney, but let's just go back to something real quick here. Could redefine the Second Amendment, according to Visrum. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Would recognizing the right to bear arms really redefine the Second Amendment? Or would it reestablish 
the protections afforded by the Second Amendment. See, I don't think that a uh, a really good rule, what I would consider to be a really good ruling, what Vizzerman would obviously consider to be a really terrible ruling, I don't think that's going to redefine the Second Amendment. I think it is going to make it a crystal, it would, if we get, again, a really strong ruling from the Supreme Court, it would hopefully remind states like New York that the Second Amendment is not a dead letter, that it is not an anachronism, that its language still applies in 2022, just as it did in 1822 or in 1791. Again, I can understand that Bikram and other gun control activists would be upset by that, but the answer then would be to change the Constitution, not to simply try to redefine what it means. All right, now we get back to the uh, Giffords uh, uh, attorney, uh, Pacino, who says, quote, this could be a really, really devastating decision that could have wide ranging and I think not currently fathomable impacts because it could potentially mean that every gun law on the books is called into question. Again, so what? Every gun control law on the books right now could be called into question. I mean, you could sue over any gun control law. I think what really has the gun control activists concerned here is that they've lost so much ground over the past 50 years. I mean, you look at what the gun control lobby was demanding in the late 60s and early 1970s. What do they want? They wanted an outright ban on handguns. I mean, that was their first goal, Handgun Control Incorporated, right? And in 1976, they had a referendum in the state of Massachusetts to ban handguns. That referendum failed, by the way. Following year, Washington, D.C. did pass its own ban on handguns. Five years later, the city of Chicago and a couple of Chicago suburbs passed their own ban on handguns. But as far as banning guns, which is really the primary goal of the gun control lobby, a group that believes that more guns equals more crime, so therefore they must believe that less guns equals less crime, that was really the high watermark. For their gun banning ways. Yeah, in the early 1990s, they managed to get a 10-year ban on so-called assault weapons approved. State-level bans still exist in half a dozen states or so. Uh, Not on handguns, of course. The Heller decision uh, made that a moot point. But they're still trying to ban guns piecemeal, right? Whether it's uh, assault weapons, whether it's ghost guns now. That's still the goal of the gun control lobby, is to ban your ability and my ability to lawfully own arms, whether they're handguns, shotguns, rifles. That's it. That's what they want. They want to make that right into a criminal act. And they have largely lost ground over the past five decades. Again, they can't ban handguns anymore. Supreme Court said you can't do it. Cannot ban an entire class of firearms. Can't ban handguns. So. Now, the Supreme Court is poised to say you can't stop the average citizen from carrying a fireman's self-defense. You can't require them to show some sort of justifiable need that uh, is based on the arbitrary and capricious decision of a judge or a county sheriff as to whether or not that actually is good cause. I don't expect the Supreme Court, by the way, to strike down shall issue laws. That's not even a question in the case. So I don't expect the court to go that far. But it is likely, and I hope that we actually see the court adopt a history, text, and tradition standard 
or at least a clear legal standard going forward for courts to use. Because one of the things that Divisrim does not acknowledge is the fact that courts have, lower courts have abused the Heller decision. They have abused the McDonald decision in order to uphold gun control laws. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, in the 14 years now since the Heller decision came down, has never rejected a gun control law and found it to be unconstitutional. You've had U.S. District Judges in the Ninth Circuit that have found gun control laws to be unconstitutional. You've even had three judge panels on the Ninth Circuit find gun laws to be unconstitutional. But in every one of those cases, an en banc review by a broader panel of Ninth Circuit judges has gone back and reversed those decisions and said, no, 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 this gun control law is fine. More than 50 times this has happened. You can't tell me that in all 50 of those cases, the Ninth Circuit didn't have its thumb on the scale wasn't looking for a way or an excuse or a rationale to uphold these gun control laws despite what the Supreme Court has said in Heller and McDonald. We know that that's the case. All you have to do is look at the uh, opinion in the en banc uh, uh, a reading of Young versus Hawaii, where you saw a panel uh, cite tribal law and give that more weight than the actual Bill of Rights in order to uh, proclaim that the ban on carrying firearms was a long-standing law that uh, can't simply be overturned because of a little thing like the Constitution. So I, I, I understand why gun control activists are freaking out about the pending Bruin decision. I think they have good reason to freak out, not in terms of what this means for the crime rate, which is how uh, uh, the uh, Fast Company reporter Talib Vizram kind of couched this. Now, I think the real concern is that a strong opinion in Bruin is going to obliterate their strategy going forward because it is going to take another high priority item uh, away from them. Can't ban handguns. Can't ban the carrying of firearms. What do you do if your whole premise is based on the idea of uh, we're all better off if nobody has a gun? I mean, where does that leave the gun control lobby? Now, they're not going to fold up their tent and go away. There's too much money. There's too much time. There are too many uh, uh, individuals who are too committed uh, to uh, civilian disarmament to let that happen. But again, this is this could be I don't want to I, I have not seen the opinion. I don't know what it's going to say. It, it could come out and I could be incredibly disappointed with what the Supreme Court has to say. But I will say that the Bruin case has the potential to upend the gun control movement. And that more than anything is why they're starting to maybe not so quietly freak out. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a case out of Delaware. An 18-year-old has been charged in the murder of a 15-year-old. This apparently uh, involved a, a drug deal, and there were you know text messages back and forth. Uh, but 18-year-old Mark Laird, charged with criminal homicide, first-degree murder, murder in the third degree, as well as uh, various firearms offenses for what the District Attorney Jack Stolzheimer is calling a cold-blooded execution of a juvenile. Prosecutor said uh, basically the defendant lured his victim to the park with the promise of a gun and instead shot him in the back of his head. Unable to keep his actions secret, the defendant then admitted to others what he had done. The actions uh, were senseless as well as heartbreaking. Mark Laird, 18 years old, 
according to the Daily Times newspaper, uh, was arrested on multiple juvenile bench warrants originally. And then he was charged with first-degree murder. But if it weren't for his juvenile record, he could not have been arrested on juvenile bench warrants. When he was arrested, he was found with a uh, Colt 1911. The Daily Times newspaper says that uh, Laird does not have a license to carry and is prohibited from owning firearms due to prior juvenile adjudications involving a robbery. Yeah. So here you have an 18-year-old already convicted of felony robbery who apparently, because he was a juvenile, received little to no time behind bars for that crime and now stands accused of first-degree murder. Delaware right now is debating requiring all gun owners to go through basically a concealed carry course before they are legally allowed to possess a firearm in their home. A law which, if in place, would not have stopped Mark Laird from allegedly uh, and illegally obtaining a firearm as a convicted felon. What would have prevented this murder is if Mark Laird had been behind bars for robbery as opposed to out on the street having already received probation for a uh, juvenile offense. I don't really think there's anything juvenile about robbery, but um, we'll keep our eyes on the story. We'll give you any more details as it become available. Today's Armed Citizen story from Massachusetts, uh, and, and a, a rare Armed Citizen story here on Bearing Arms that does not involve the use of a firearm, but I love this story. I wanted to talk about it. A 14-year-old girl uses steak knives and cell phone to thwart a career criminal. Yeah. You know, we have seen stories in the past where teens have uh, been at home alone and they have been forced to use a firearm in self-defense. Uh, in this case, it was a, a teen girl who uh, managed to get a hold of a couple of steak knives from her kitchen. Uh, the uh, 14-year-old called 911 uh, Monday morning, about 720, telling the dispatcher that somebody had broken into her home. She said, I got out of the house. I scared him. I took a video of his truck leaving, so I have his license plate. Teenager was woken up by the sound of the intruder. She said she went to check on what was making the noise, and she was confronted by this guy who was in her home. She said, I was like, get out of my house, get out of my house, and he looked shocked. She said, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. Then she grabbed two steak knives from a kitchen drawer and followed the intruder outside as he fled the scene. Uh, later identified as a 58-year-old Joseph Ridge of Bourne, Massachusetts. Joseph Perkins, chief of the Middleborough Mass Police Department, says the suspect in this case is a career criminal who was arrested after terrorizing a 14-year-old girl in her own home. Hopefully his arrest this time will bring this known felon to account for his crimes. You think? Really? Do you think it will? I don't have any confidence that it will. I mean, I, I, I hope that it does, but uh, 58-year-old career criminal, still at least, what, nine years away from retirement age, so uh, unless he gets a nine-year sentence, I'm not convinced that uh, this is going to be the last we hear of Mr. Bourne, but I am glad that that 14 year old had the presence of mind to protect and defend herself. And again, I mean, it just it 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 brings home the point that no matter how well intentioned these laws might be, they say, "Oh, you can't let your kids have access to a firearm." I think ultimately it's that parent's decision as to whether or not your kid is responsible enough to have access to a firearm when they are home alone. Again, I mean, we have seen stories of uh, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds 
who have had to use guns in self-defense because they are there by themselves. No parent is around when somebody breaks into their home and threatens them with violence. And I would hate to see a situation where one of those kids was killed because they could not protect themselves. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all law here. Again, I think it's ultimately the parent's uh, choice and the parent's responsibility uh, to teach their kids to be safe and responsible with firearms. And when they feel like they have that grasp, if they want their child to be able to protect themselves with a gun when the parents aren't there, I I think that they should have the ability to do so. Because we know what the consequences could be otherwise. All right, finally today, our good deed of the day. This is a, uh, a screen grab from a body cam in New York City. A woman who had fallen, or I guess jumped, into the pond in Central Park and was drowning earlier this week. Uh, Officer Emily Healy ended up jumping into that reservoir to rescue the woman. Healy said that she and Sergeant Matthew Machetto were patrolling nearby when somebody told them that a woman had gone into the water. She was fully dressed. She was about 15 yards away from the shore when the officers found her. Healy said, we tried to call her back, saying, hey, come back, communicate with her, see if she would get back herself, but she said she didn't know how. And as we're watching her, I noticed that her head starts to dip down under the water. So Healy, who, by the way, happens to be on the NYPD swim team, I didn't even realize that there was such a thing, but uh, there is, and she is, swam competitively in school as well. Uh, She jumped into the water. Typically when she swam competitively, I'm guessing she didn't have her uniform on, but uh, she did that day. She said, I swam in high school and college, uh, competed year-round for it. So while it wasn't the warmest pool I've ever been in, it's good, and it was nice to say that I have the skill set to help this woman. And she did. She uh, jumped over a chest-high fence, leapt into the water, was able to uh, get to the woman and uh, bring her back safely to shore. Healy said that she was very grateful, said thank you, said she couldn't swim, and didn't know what she would do if we weren't there. So in the right place, at the right time, willing to do the right thing. Officer Emily Healy there with the NYPD. We thank you for your very good deed. And I thank you for being a part of this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. This is the last one for the week, but I will be back on Monday. And, of course, we'll be updating the website uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday as well. Uh, yeah. I, my, my output may be a little bit smaller than normal uh, over the weekend. I've got some unpleasant things to deal with. And it's unfortunately uh, going to take me away from the computer. But uh, I will be back. And, of course, we will be updating the website throughout the weekend, not only myself, but uh, Tom Knighton as well. And our uh, great freelancers, uh, John Petrolino, Ranjit Singh. Who knows if they'll be uh, stopping by. But I will be back Monday. And until we talk again, hope you have a great weekend. Be well. Be safe. And be free. Be free.